So that's, we're on lesson number 73 in your books. The lesson is entitled, what is it? A Faith Called Great. We will be looking at Matthew 15, verses, let's see what, verses uh, 21 to 28. And also, if you want to get yourself in two locations, we will also be looking at the parallel account in Mark 7, verses 24 to 30. So I will probably begin reading in Matthew 15. Let's look at verses 21 to 28 to begin with. We're gonna, we have a three-part outline of our study of Faith Called Great. We're going to be looking at a desperate request, a determined response, and a desired result. So let's begin by looking at a desperate request from a desperate woman, Matthew 15. Everybody finish turning their pages. Let's look at verses 21 to 24. It says, Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. But he answered her not a word, and his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he, Christ, answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. All right, now, if you would flip over to Mark, let's look at what Mark writes about this in verses 24 to 26. It says, Mark 7, 24, And from thence he, Christ, arose and went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon and entered into an house, and would have no man know it, went into a house privately so that nobody would know he was there, but, you might want to underline this in your Bibles, but he could not be hid. How true. For a certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by nation, and she besought him that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter. Okay, we'll stop for there right now. The Lord still had not had any quality a time alone to rest with his men. Ever since they had come back from that first mission venture without him. Remember, he had given them the ordination sermon, and then he had sent them out in pairs, and they went out on that first mission without him, and they returned, and they were going to have some quality time with him. I think it was back in Mark 6. It said they were going to go away to, to talk about things and just get alone with the Lord. And they, they were going to do that when they went over from Capernaum to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to Bethsaida. But what had happened? The crowds had followed them over. They had actually beaten them over there by running around on foot at the upper part of the lake. And when they got over there, Jesus healed all their sick, and he taught them all day long, and then they got hungry at night. And what happened? He couldn't send them away hungry, so he fed them. We had the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. And then they wanted to put a crown on his head, and he, so he had to send the crowd away, and he put his disciples on a boat and sent them across the sea. A storm hit the sea. He had to walk out on the water and rescue them. Remember all that? Then in the morning, the, <clears throat> the crowd that was over near Bethsaida got up, looked for him, couldn't find him. They crossed back over in boats and by foot, found him back in Capernaum, and what happened? He gave them the Bread of Life sermon, in which we spent four weeks. Shortly on the heels of the Bread of Life sermon came the Defilement sermon of Mark chapter 7 primarily. And that's what we looked at last week. So has he, really, he hasn't really had much time for quality rest with his disciples. So he took them. If he's going to get any rest, he's got to get away from the Jewish people primarily. So he took them into Gentile territory. And he found, it tells us, a private house. I don't know whose home it was, but he found a private house to stay in where no one would know where they were. But soon, a, a woman, a Syrophoenician woman, a certain woman, we are told, who was Greek. And I love this account because there's only one woman in all the Bible who Jesus commends for her great faith, and it says she was a Greek. So I'm a little bit prejudiced toward this particular story. <laughs> But actually, I have to admit the fact that 
even though it says she's a Greek, it probably just means that she was a Gentile. Therefore, if you're not Jewish, you are also included in this account. She was Syrophoenician by nationality, which means she was from the area of uh, Phoenicia, Syrian Phoenicia. They're both adjacent to one another. And it also tells us that she was a Canaanite. The Canaanites, that, that would be Matthew telling the Jews that she was from the area of the, um, the Canaanites in past, you know, Old Testament times. And the Canaanites were the ancestral enemies of the Jews. So anyway, this woman found Jesus, and that's the, that's the subject of our uh, lesson for this morning. We're going to be looking at this woman who gives us a very wonderful example about having great faith. Now, Jesus did not go, therefore, into this area of Tyre and Sidon to minister. Now, Tyre and Sidon was about 40 miles northwest of Capernaum. I guess that would probably have been about a two-day walk. He didn't go there to minister. He went there to do what? To rest. He went there to have some quality alone time with his men. It's interesting to me, I thought this was very interesting, that this is the same area where God sent the prophet Elijah to rest. During the, there was a, a famine in the land of Israel, remember that? Back in Elijah's day, and God sent him out of Israel. He sent him up to Zarephath, which was near Tyre and Sidon, same area. And he sent Elijah there to be ministered to by a woman, the, the widow of Zarephath. And it's interesting, here we are in our Life of Christ study, and Jesus is also sent during a time of famine in Israel to this area. The famine in Israel at this time was not physical. It was a spiritual famine. And he too was ministered to by a woman. Because this woman, her great faith really, I believe, ministered to the Lord at a time when he really needed to see someone with great faith. Now, I don't know if the woman was a widow. It would be interesting if she too was a widow, but we do know that she had a daughter. And the widow of Zarephath had a son, remember? And Elijah rose him from the dead. And Jesus heals this daughter. All right, you can read about uh, Elijah's rest in 1 Kings 17.9. So the Lord and his disciples, anyway, went into a home to escape notice. But can the light of the world be confined and hidden under a, a roof and between four walls? No, there's no way that anyone can put that much light under a bushel. The Lord cannot be hid. So soon a woman of Canaan, whose nationality was Syrophoenician, a Greek, she probably spoke the Greek language, but she, she was obviously, very obviously, a Gentile. She heard about Jesus, and she came to him with her desperate request. She was a hurting parent. She was a hurting mother whose young daughter had an unclean spirit. When she went to where Jesus was, she cried out to him. She besought him. In the, in the English, we don't see, but she, it, this was in the continual tense. She kept on beseeching him. She kept on crying after him. It even sounds like later that he and his disciples got up from the house and walked out, and she kept on following them and beseeching them. And she cried out, what? Have mercy on me. O oh Lord, thou son of David, my daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. I think it was interesting. I didn't notice this for a while, but I did eventually that she said, have mercy on me. Now, who was the one in trouble? Her daughter. But do you see the connection between a parent, especially a mother and her child? If the child is suffering, does the mother suffer? Oh, yes. It's just sometimes I think it's even worse on the mother than on the child. If you're a mother, if you're a grandmother, if you have nieces, nephews, you know what I'm talking about. That, um, yeah, I would rather take the pain than have my child suffer. I can say that 100%, and I'm sure you can all identify with that. Her daughter's problem was her own. She probably hadn't had sleep, you know, for many, many days and nights because her child was suffering. So she said, have mercy on me. And it's interesting, she said her daughter was grievously vexed because the only other, we'll be talking about him, the only other person that Jesus ever commended for having great faith was who? Roman centurion, 
who interestingly was also a Gentile, and he was interceding on behalf of his servant boy. And he too said, used the word grievously, he said his, his servant was grievously tormented. It meant um, very badly, seriously tormented. Now in this case with the woman, the word for unclean spirit, that she was vexed with an unclean spirit, I think that must be over in the Mark account, uh, uh, yeah, Mark 7.25 means that it was a s- unclean in an, in an immoral way that this spirit was vexing the daughter. The devil had assaulted this young girl by permitting some type of immorality to take hold of her. It was an immoral spirit, so she was involved in something immoral. Now, when it says that the term used for daughter that the mother uses actually is a very tender word where she's saying, my darling little girl. Don't get the picture that this is a little, little girl. This could have been a you know, young teenage girl. My daughters are in the 20s, and I still think of them as my darling little girls. So the devil had assaulted this young girl, and the mother had a tremendous burden for her child, as many, many parents have today have burdens for their children who are also facing the frontal assaults of the devil and his wicked forces of demons. I don't think that there has ever, I may be wrong, but I don't think there's ever been a time in history when young people are being attacked so viciously by the assault of the unclean spirits, especially of immorality. Even among children whose parents love the Lord, these attacks are taking many, many casualties. It is so sad. Young people raised in the church who know, know the truth of God's word, and they're being taken victim. Satan is doing all that he can to destroy the next generation by filling our young people with this philosophy that says, well, there is no God. Um, you know, go ahead, mock him. You'll see there's, there's no consequences. They're sticking their tongue out at God, in effect. They're saying there's no absolutes. And, and, you know, they're getting bombarded with all this from the media and from all the adults as well who are saying the same thing. There's no rules. There's no absolutes. You just, uh, you know, you do what f- you feel like doing. After all, evolution is true, you know, so there's no consequences. When we die, we die. There's no price to pay. There's no divine judgment. And if there is God, he'll just weigh our good against our bad. And this frontal attack of unclean spirits comes to them everywhere they go. It comes to them from, from the school system. It comes to them on uh, television, bombarded with it, in their DVDs, the, the theaters, Hollywood, their peers, where else? Their music, you name it. They're pressured everywhere to live immorally, to break laws, to no, show, show no respect for those in authority to show no respect for their elders. How seldom do you see a young person who has respect for their elders anymore? They just talk horribly to, to parents, to everyone. When's the last time you saw a young man hold a door open for somebody? I mean, I hope you see it at church, but it's getting very, very rare. You hear young people saying, yes, ma'am, no, sir. If you have children and grandchildren, teach them those things. Teach them to be polite so we don't lose it totally. Um, And they're pressured everywhere uh, to destroy their bodies um, with drugs. You know, anything to get a buzz, anything to get a high, drugs, whatever it takes, alcohol, sex. And many parents are desperate to know what to do about it. Most parents don't know where to turn for help. Most of them, I'd have to admit, need help themselves. Most of them need help themselves. This Syrophoenician woman, even though she had been raised a pagan in a very pagan society, she was wise enough, first of all, to recognize that her daughter had a problem. You know, that's the first step. You have to, you can't keep pulling the wool over your eyes. You have to recognize if your child has a problem that they do indeed have a problem. And she recognized that. Secondly, she realized that the world in which she lived had no answers. Thirdly, when she heard of him, as it says in Mark 7, 25, 
she heard of him, meaning who? Jesus. She had enough love for her child and enough faith in the reports about this man, Jesus, to venture out on her own to intercede on her child's behalf to him. Now, how do you think this woman living up in Tyre, in the area of Tyre and Sidon, had heard of the Lord Jesus? How had she heard of Jesus? Well, if you will look in Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount and look at verse uh, chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, I think it is, we are told that many people from that area, that Gentile area of the world, and also uh, from Syria and from Decapolis and from Perea on the other side of the Jordan, had come down to the area of Capernaum and heard the Lord give the Sermon on the Mount and watched him heal many people. Also remember the demoniac of the Gadarenes, and he had published the news abroad. He was probably still in the process of doing that at this time, telling the people of Decapolis about the Lord Jesus Christ. Word, And there had been a lot of Gentiles who had trickled down, and word had gotten back up into these Gentile areas about the Lord Jesus Christ. So even though she had been raised in a pagan culture which was known for its vileness and wicked practices, and even though she did not have the privilege of having God's written revelation, she did not have the privilege of the Jews. She didn't have the Old Testament scriptures or God's unconditional blessings, um, his covenant promises, or his temple to go worship in, or the priesthood, or the whole sacrificial system, the laws, etc. She had heard about the Jewish Messiah. Even though she didn't have all these other things, she'd heard about the the promise of the Jewish Messiah, and she came to him when he was in her area. She came to him with her desperate request. And this was the first step in the right direction because, do you know what? There is no cure anywhere else for the ailments of our children, for our own ailments, for the spiritual problems that are assaulting our young people and our nation and our world There is no other great physician other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is the the great physician of the body, soul, and spirit. Now, there may be some temporary helps out there in the world. You know, you go to a a psychologist or a um, psychiatrist or a non-Christian counselor who does not use the word of God, and they can give you some kind of a Band-Aid treatment. They can put you on some kind of tranquilizer or sedative or you know, uh, uppers or downers or tell you that all your problems are, are, are the result of having over-dominant parents or it goes back all the way to your great-grandparents or something, you know, like that, which is what they do. But other, other than a temporary fix, there is no lasting cure apart from the Lord Jesus Christ who alone, remember this, it's so important, he alone is the answer. He alone can take a troubled team and... Cure them. Heal them. He alone can take a wayward, immoral, rebellious son or daughter and deliver them from their evil. He alone is the answer. Sin is the problem. He is the solution. He is the Savior. The best solution for any kind of depravity is to bring Christ onto the scene. And that's what this woman understood. And that's why she was so persistent. And I just love everything about her. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about her in a minute. All right, because of the fact that she was a Canaanite um, from the area of where the Canaanites had been back in Old Testament days, her people worshipped a pantheon of gods and goddesses. The main one was probably the goddess Astarte, and they had all kinds of wicked, vile practices that were affiliated with the worship of Astarte. But the fact that she came to Jesus, a Jewish teacher, and healer implies that her own religious system of idolatry and immorality had proven dis- deficient in solving her daughter's problem. By coming to Jesus, you see, she was turning away from the system of Satan, which was so prevalent in her culture. And that was a good step to turn away from Satan's system. She pleaded for what? What was it she asked for? Mercy. That was another smart move on her behalf. That demonstrated her knowledge, you see, of her own unworthiness to come to Jesus. She knew that she did not deserve his help. 
You see, mercy, by definition of the word, is a plea for something undeserved. She knew she didn't deserve any mercy. Um, she was unworthy of him. She didn't demand, she didn't go into his presence and demand that Jesus heal her daughter, but she pleaded with him. And she did it repeatedly, by the way, I've told you that already, but she did it based on, on um, not her own goodness. She didn't say, Jesus, heal my daughter because I've been a good person. I've never really done anything terrible. I've never murdered anyone or committed adultery. She didn't plead with him on the basis of her own goodness, but based on whose goodness? His goodness. His goodness. So she, she cried for mercy. That was, that was right. That was good. And you remember, it always starts with what? Poverty of spirit and understanding our own unworthiness, our own spiritual bankruptcy. And she cried to him. You know, there are a lot of people out there in the world who are crying. Lots of people crying. Lots of people even in the church who are crying. But how many are crying for mercy, especially out there in the world? And how many of them are willing to come to him? You see, she had both things right. She cried for mercy, and she came to him. <clears throat> she besought Jesus that he would cast out the unclean spirit from her daughter. There is always, always hope. Even if you pass from the scene and go on into heaven, remember this. There is always hope for that son or daughter who has either a mother or a father or both praying for him or her. I've often said some, of the, some parents will not see the answers to their prayers probably until they're looking down from heaven's balcony. But remember, the best thing a wayward son or daughter or grandchild or niece or nephew or young person in your church who you have a burden for, there's always hope for them. The best thing they have going for them is your prayers or your husband's prayers for them or their grandmother's prayers or their grandfather's. We need to remember that, don't we? Don't forget it. It's so important that they have a prayer warrior on, that, on their side. The woman may have had very limited spiritual privilege or opportunity. I, compare her with what the scribes and Pharisees had, privilege-wise, opportunity-wise. She had very little, but this woman could pray with the best of them. She knew how to pray. Lord, have mercy on me. You know, that's the best prayer of all. <laughs> it doesn't have to be long and flowing and full of all kinds of verbosity like the scribes and Pharisees tried to show off with. Just kind of like Peter when he was thinking, Lord, save me. She said, Lord, have mercy on me. And it's interesting to me, too, that we, we often find faith in the most unlikely places, don't we? Who would ever think that you'd find great faith from a Roman centurion of all people? Or, or a Greek woman? <laughs> it's just amazing. Or the Samaritan woman. Or a publican named Levi. You know, you find great faith sometimes in the least likely places. Well, the lesson to us in this is that uh, there's a lot of lessons in this lesson, but we should bathe our children <clears throat> and our grandchildren and the next generation in prayer uh, every day. Every single day we should be cognizant to remember to pray for, the, for their protection for, from the evil one and from the sinful influences of this world. It's very important that we do this. Our, our, our country is post-Christian right now, and it depends on us, the Lord's people. We need to be praying for the next generation as somebody's going to be around to carry on the baton for the Lord Jesus. We should ask for a wall of protection to be built up around them to keep out the, the unclean spiritual attack on today's generation, and it's vicious. We should pray for them to have divine wisdom and to make right choices based on what? The only instruction book there is that works, the Word of God. And we should make absolutely sure that they're continually, continually hearing it. And don't just depend on your church to do it. At home, they need to be hearing it continually. This is what the Lord told the Israelites. Have the Word in front of them day and night, day and night. Constantly tell them, you know, all the heartaches of this world are caused by what? 
sin, disobedience to, to, to God's word. We should send out our grandchildren and our children uh, into the world each day prepared for battle with, with the world because this is we are in a spiritual war. We should teach them about the armor of God and to put it on every day. I remember when I used to take my children to school, I would always say, have you got your whole armor on? You know, remember, you're in a warfare. You're children of the light. Don't expect to be Mr. or Mrs. Popularity. You aren't going to be. You're going to be different. You need to be different. You need to let your light so shine before men. They need to see that you're different. Don't You don't, you know, peer pressure, positive peer pressure is good. But negative peer pressure, we need, they're in a battle with that. So send them out, send them out equipped. We shouldn't let our children out of our sight in the morning until we have, first of all, bathed them in prayer. It's a very, very, very difficult task to bring up children in this world. In our, in the, and I believe we are in the latter days of the latter days. To bring them up to be emotionally, mentally, physically, socially, and most importantly, spiritually stable. It's amazing to me how few people are are even concerned, especially about the spiritual aspect of things. I mean, they'll take their children to teach them how to, to ha- do, have karate lessons and dancing lessons and piano lessons and music lessons and what else is there? Sports, oh, sports, sports and more sports, all these things, and yet very little concern about this, their spiritual aspect of things. Most parents are very unconcerned about that. You know, my degree is in education, and uh, when I was taking the university courses that I had to take on child psychology and, and um, child behavior and all those things, I, I, I developed this uh, three-point philosophy about raising children. Huh? Yes, I was unsaved when I was in the university. Um, I didn't get saved until after I graduated, but... I had this three-point system how to raise children based on all these classes and all my great knowledge. Well, when I had three children of my own, do you know what happened to those three philosophies? <laughs> they disappeared in a hurry. You know, now, after I have raised three children, it's so nice that the Lord is going to give me a second chance. Now I'm on grandchild number three. <laughs> Isn't it great to have second chances sometimes? Anyway, um, I have no theories anymore. I only have one, and that's, that's to use this book. You know, this is, this is my only answer for raising children, is to do your very best to raise them according to this book. If we obey this book, we'll be blessed. Now, yes, we're going to have trials, and we're going to have um, sicknesses, and there, there are natural disasters and all those kind of things. Because we live in a sin-cursed world, we're going to face those things. But if we're grounded on the rock, we'll be able to encounter. We'll be able to go through those trials, and be triumphant through them, even through the last trial, death. Right. The only important thing is to to raise our children to know the book and to know that it is indeed God's word, and they need to obey it. And to continue to be like this Syrophoenician woman all the time interceding to the Lord Jesus on behalf of our children. That's one thing I've learned, too. I just constantly need to be interceding on their behalf, that he will have mercy on them and consequently mercy on me and deliver them from the evils of this world. You know, parenting, it is said that parenting is the process of losing your child. And this is true. Parenting is the process that begins by doing absolutely everything for a child, right? Some of you may be at that stage where you're feeding them, they can't change their own diaper. They can't dress themselves. They can't walk so you carry them. They can't do a thing. But parenting begins by doing everything for a child and slowly, step by step, teaching them to do everything for themselves so that they become independent of their need for you. It is said that parenting is one of those jobs that when you finally learn how to do it, you no longer have the job. <laughs> although I'm not so sure that's still true. I have a son in his 30s, and I think, I think in some ways he needs me more now than he did when he was at home. But it is nice that we sometimes have that second chance, start all over again with grandchildren. <laughs> Get to spoil them rotten and then send them home so the parents can discipline. 
Uh, so the lesson is, is uh, the same one that this Canaanite woman teaches us by her example, really, here. Don't ever, ever give up on your children. Bring your desperate request to the Lord and be determined to be persistent. Don't quit. Christ, remember this, too. Lots of things to remember. But Christ is not limited by the greatness of the problem. Whatever the problem is, there's no problem that is greater than his power. He's not at all limited. Well, not only did the woman ask for mercy, which demonstrated that she understood her own unworthiness, her own poverty of spirit, but she um, also brought her request, as I said a little while ago, to the right source. She had heard about the Jewish Messiah, who they called the Son of David. She called him the Son of David. That was a Jewish messianic term. And what she heard about this man Jesus matched up in her mind and in her heart with what she had heard about the Jewish Messiah, which is amazing. The religious rulers of Israel couldn't manage to match it up, but here's a totally pagan woman who's able to easily match up with what she heard about the Messiah with this man Jesus. So she says to him, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. She not only recognized her own unworthiness to come to him, but she also sensed his goodness, didn't she? Or she wouldn't have come to him. She sensed he was a good man. She sensed, too, that he had the power to do what she asked him to do. Furthermore, she had boldness. Think about this. Where was he at this time? Where was he? In a private home. And she went right on into that home. We'll read about another woman who did that, who who wiped the, uh, who um, her tears fell on the Lord's feet and she wiped his, cleaned his feet with her long hair and her tears. She went boldly into the presence of the Lord when he was in a private home with Simon the Pharisee and everybody scorned him. This woman here, this Syrophoenician woman, that took boldness for her to go into that private home, even if they were out in a courtyard, and do this. It again indicated her humility because everybody would, what is she doing here? You know, she had boldness to go before the throne of grace, and she wasn't even yet a child of the king. What about you and I? If we're truly children of the king, if we're truly genuinely saved, we have boldness to go before the throne of grace, don't we? To obtain mercy and to find grace in the time of need. Furthermore, she treated him with great reverence and dignity. She calls him Lord a total of three times. This woman to the Lord Jesus must have been like a refreshing breeze, you know, of, of fresh air after all the crude and irreverent treatment that he has been receiving, both by the crowd of one-time disciples who, remember, murmured at him while he was giving them the Bread of Life sermon. They began murmuring and complaining, and then what did they do at the end? They turned and walked away from him. And that crowd was uh, followed up by the committee of critics, the religious critics from Jerusalem who didn't even try to attempt to conceal their hostility toward him. So this woman was, she was, I think she, her faith, her great faith ministered to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's interesting if you look at the Lord's life, that every time, it seems like every time after, after he's encountered some battle with, with his critics, some woman, like the woman with the two mites, comes into his life, or Mary of Bethany, or the woman we just talked about who, um, whose tears fell on his feet. It's just amazing how women were constantly there to minister to the Lord Jesus, and this woman here was another example of that. And that's why at first it might seem strange when we read of the Lord's response to her request. She has just said, Lord, have mercy. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. And what is his response to her? His response is no response. That's, that's really strange when you first read it. He answered her not a word. And then it says, his, this is where am I looking at, Matthew 15, 23. Then it says, his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. This poor woman had many obstacles in her way. Have you ever thought you've had a lot of obstacles in your way? Getting in the way of your answered prayer? Well, she had maybe even more than you have. What makes her faith so great is that she allowed none of those obstacles to stop her. She persisted against each and every one of, uh, one of them. 
What were these obstacles? Well, first of all, her nationality was against her. She was a Greek or a Syrophoenician, a, a Canaanite, and what was Jesus? A Jew. And Jews, as we learned last week in our lesson on um, hand the cleansing, hand-washing thing and Corban and all that, and we learned this when we talked about the Samaritan woman at the well as, as well, <laughs> the well, at well as well, but Jews didn't have anything to do with Gentiles back in those days. So that was one thing against her was her nationality. Secondly, she was a woman. And back in that day, a society was dominated by men. Thirdly, Satan was against her because he had one of his demons, one of his unclean spirits, controlling this woman's daughter and making her life probably literally a hell on earth. And now, as we just read, she also had the Lord's disciples against her. They still, this is amazing to me, but these men, these disciples, as much as we love them, they still had not learned much about human compassion, even though they had watched the Lord be so compassionate with people for some two years now. Exhibit compassion over and over again. Their only solution here was the same one that they had given the Lord when the, the crowd of 15,000 people got hungry. <laughs> Remember, they went to the Lord Jesus and said, send them away, Lord. Basically, let them go into the villages and fend for themselves. Get rid of the problem, Lord. And here they do the same thing. They say, essentially, send this pesty Gentile woman away because her cry, her continuous cry for mercy is getting on our nerves. We can't take this anymore. We came here, Lord, to be left alone, to have quality time with you. We need some privacy, so get rid of her. But, you know, of all her obstacles, I think the one that looks the worst of all is that Jesus himself seemed to be against her because he spoke not one single word in response to her desperate request. So this was far from an easy situation for a hurting mother to encounter, but it is one in which she triumphed because of her great faith and her persistence and her boldness. Too many times, you know what happens to you and I? Too many times we get our eyes fixed on the obstacles, the greatness of the problem. And we say it's just beyond a fix. It's too much. And so we quit praying. Have you ever felt like sometimes your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling and you're getting nowhere? You've prayed for years and years and years and you've seen no change. And we, so we let the obstacles get in our way and we quit praying. Of course, it is important that you're in fellowship with the Lord or your prayers will bounce off the ceiling. That's why it's important that, you know, we keep ourselves right before, our, before the Lord so that our prayers are heard. But this woman, she, I needed her this past week as I was studying. She teaches us to persist in our prayers and to never, ever give up. She teaches us just by her pure determination and faith to keep our eyes on Jesus in spite of what the odds may be. Even if the world is against us, which is represented by the bigotry of Jews against Gentiles, you know, by her nationality, by her sex being a woman instead of a man. So even if the world is against us, even though Satan is seemingly winning the battle against us through his hold on, our, on, on those we love, and even though fellow believers, represented by the disciples here, even though fellow disciples... Uh, fellow believers may also seem to be against us sometimes. And does that happen? It does. Sometimes the worst advice comes from fellow believers. So even if they seem to be against us. And lastly, even if it may appear that Jesus himself is against us, you know, not answering our prayers. Heaven is silent. We learn from this woman, don't quit. Don't give up. Keep on praying. Keep on what? Asking, seeking, and knocking. We might ask why Jesus, who is the Word, is he not the Word incarnate, the Word of God, why would he have no word for this woman's request for mercy? Well, there are several reasons. One is that he wanted to test the woman's faith. Remember that the Lord's delays are not always denials. Sometimes he delays because he gets the greater glory. Remember the situation with Lazarus? 
he wouldn't have gotten so much glory if Lazarus had been raised from, the, uh, from sickness as opposed to being raised from dead. The Lord's delays are not necessarily denials. He not only gets more glory, but guess what he also does? He stretches our faith as we wait on him. If you're having a problem with patience, read Psalm 37. Psalm 37. He purposely, the Lord purposely put up obstacles and barriers in this woman's way, not to keep her away, but to draw her closer to him and to increase her faith. Secondly, he knew the woman's heart. He knows everybody's heart, does he not? And he already knew, you see, that her faith was going to prove itself to be genuine. And she would persist. So he wanted, also remember this, who is he primarily interested in teaching? His men. He, he's doing this on, a lot of this on, on the behalf of his men to teach them. He wanted to use this situation, this occasion, to teach his disciples the difference between genuine, the genuine and the superficial. They had just gotten a very strong dose of superficial faith when they watched that uh, the majority of one-time disciples turn and walk away from him. And they had also gotten a large dose of hypocritical faith probably all their lives as they had watched the religious rulers and um, learned what hypocrites that they were. So they needed, at this time, the disciples needed a very good example of genuine heartfelt faith, and this woman was going to supply that. This woman had it. Well, actually, it's just like the, the Lord's work with the Samaritan woman at the well. He, kept, he took her step by step, didn't he, the woman at the well? And he does exactly the same thing here. And this woman proves to really have genuine saving faith at the end. So Jesus purposely put up barriers that only true believing faith would overcome. He knew that her heart would overcome. Now you also know when you read this, and Jesus sounds kind of harsh and cruel here, you know this, don't you? Whenever you read something, you, you, you would say to yourself, well, I know that Jesus never, ever turns anybody away who is genuinely seeking him. So there's got to be some other reasons for what he's doing here, and there are. Well, then to his disciples who had just pleaded with him to send her away, he says to them, and the woman might have overheard this. She probably did if she was behind them. But he said to his men, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, this is where it gets a little bit deep, so just hang in here. Another answer for the Lord's silence in response to this woman's request can be found in this statement. You see, this woman was a Gentile, but she had come to Jesus on Jewish ground, or she had attempted to come to him on Jewish ground by calling him what? The son of David. If you remember, one of the greatest battles that the early church had to face and had to overcome was what, against the Judaizers was whether a, a, um, a Gentile had to first become like a Jewish proselyte before they could be saved. Did they have to be circumcised? Did they have to obey the laws? And this, of course, is what the Judaizers was pushing. You can read about this in the book of Galatians. You read about it in the book of Acts. Well, Jesus here was eliminating that whole issue by refusing to acknowledge a request from a Gentile made to him as the Jewish Messiah. In effect, his silence was a statement that Gentiles do not come to him through the Jewish door. We don't need to come to Jesus through the Jewish door. Our husbands and sons do not need to be circumcised. The laws, we are not justified by the works of the law, are we? So Gentiles come to him through what door? The sinner's door. We come to him through the sinner's door, the same way that Jews themselves come to him. Because this woman had no claim on Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, he did not respond to her. He made it clear to her that he had come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But, and, and this might not have seemed consistent you know, with the compassionate Christ that the, the uh, disciples had been watching for two years. But by these words, because we know he already did um, answer the prayer request of a Roman centurion, for example, and he had healed many Gentile peoples. He had also um, saved the whole town of Sychar, had, had gotten saved, the Samaritan woman, even though they were half Jewish, half Gentile. 
But you see, by these words, the Lord was really teaching his men that his plan of redemption was still on its original course. He was showing them that even though the religious leaders of the nation and all his former disciples had turned away from him, he and he had now withdrawn into Gentile territory. That must have alarmed them a little bit. Even in spite of all this, this did not mean that he was finished with Israel. Do you know that today? A lot of churches teach that God is finished with Israel, but that is not true. He made a lot of promises to Israel that are not yet fulfilled, and he keeps his promises. He is going to finish his prom- he's working. He's working as we speak, finishing up some of those promises with Israel. They were still the Lord's chosen people, and the kingdom was still to be offered first to those of Abraham's seed. His primary ministry... Is, was still at this time with the children of the covenant, and it was not yet to move out into uh, to the Gentile nations. That was to be something that another apostle they didn't even know about yet, something that would be his primary ministry, and that's Paul, you know, and, and Barnabas, and some of those guys would move on into the Gentile nations. The full opportunity of Israel, however, at this point, had not yet been presented. They still had another year, another almost full year of his ministry among them. And they still had a crucifixion and a resurrection and an ascension to convince them of who he is. Remember, they were going to get one more sign. And what was it? The sign of Jonas, the resurrection after three days. So... um, he was, he was basically saying he's not, he was not changing God's order of revelation. It had always been to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Remember how he um, told the woman at the well that the salvation is of the Jews. Although his first priority was to reveal himself to Israel and to minister among them and offer them the promised kingdom, yet, of course, as we know, the Lord Jesus always extended himself to any genuinely seeking heart the one the heart that was open to him he never ever refused anyone based on their nationality their their sex gender their culture their race whatever and that of course is exactly what he does with this woman and uh, but first he did have to demonstrate that she did not need to come to him as a jewish proselyte he also needed to reassure his men that he was not altering the divine plan of presenting himself first to Israel. And thirdly, through all of this, he is testing the woman's faith. He is definitely stretching her faith. So let's look at a determined response. Matthew 15, verses 25 to 28. We've got to really speed up here. Verses 25 to 28, Matthew 15. Then came she and worshipped him saying, Lord, help me. Notice she drops the Jewish business. She just says, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. Man, really makes Jesus sound pretty cruel here, doesn't it? And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, Great is thy faith, be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. Don't you want to hear that from the Lord's lips when you get to heaven? Oh, I do. Oh, woman, great is thy faith. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. This woman's determination is a wonderful example to all of us. It would have been so easy for her to quit. It would have been so easy for her to say to herself, this man is nothing like I thought he would be. He is not at all compassionate. Uh, He's just as bigoted as all the rest of those snobby Jews who think they are so much better than we are. And just look at his men. How many people turn away from Jesus because they look at his followers? This would have been easy. She said, look at those who follow him. I mean, they keep turning around and looking at me, giving their disgusting looks like they wish I would just perish, like I'd just hightail it out of here. I don't need to, to take this. I don't need to keep making a fool of myself. There's no more hope here than there is anywhere else. You know, she could have just stomped her foot and said, I'm going home. Forget this business. How many people would have done that? Would you have done that? I might have been tempted to do that. Somebody calls me a dog. 
forget this, I'm going to go home. But you know what? If she had gone, gone home, what would she have found at home? Her daughter, still grievously vexed by a demon. This would have been a response typical of most people. Most will quit pursuing God in prayer after just one obstacle comes their way and makes their situation look hopeless. They figure, well, I guess there either is no God or he just doesn't care about me. He cares about everybody else, but he doesn't care about me and my problems. But that isn't true. That is not true. He infinitely cares more. And we have to ask him if he's trying to teach us something so we can hurry up and learn the lesson that he's trying to teach us so then he will answer our prayer requests for those we're interceding for. And oftentimes, as I said, his silence is just a test. His delays are not always denials. The obstacles the Lord placed before this woman didn't stop her one bit. She knew that what she heard about him was true, and she was convinced that he was the only one who could help her. So in beatific humility, she comes before him, and this time, what does she do? Over in Mark, it says she falls down at his feet. She prostrated herself before him. She worshipped him. She pleaded with even greater determination, but she did drop the Jewish business. She merely said, Lord, help me. In effect, she was saying, okay, Lord, I'll do away with the Jewish door. I'm coming to you simply as a poor, helpless sinner in great, desperate need of your mercy and help. Apart from you, I can do nothing. You are Lord, and I worship you. Will you meet my need. Again, a succinct prayer, but one that was powerful because where did it come from? It came from her heart, and she was not at all pride. Pride really interferes with our prayer life, you know. Well, with such reverence and humility, you would surely think that finally Jesus would respond kindly to her and grant her request. But he put her off again by saying to her the same basic truth that he had said about being sent, you know, to the house of Israel. He says it's not meat, which means it's not good to take the children's bread. What does that mean? Who are the children? The Jews. It's not good to take what is the children's bread, the Israelites' bread, and cast it to the dogs. Who did he mean by the dogs? The Gentiles. Now, I thought about the fact that he had just offered the bread to the children, and they didn't want it, did they? The bread of life sermon. He said, I am the bread, and they refused it. But uh, it's interesting. We, we, we miss a lot by not seeing the Greek words. In Greek, there are two words for dogs. One word indicates a vicious dog, you know, a dog that travels in a pack of wild dogs, and uh, you see these especially in other countries. They'll eat off the garbage and trash, and they're just mean. You don't want to get anywhere near them. They haven't had their rabies shots. They haven't had vaccines. Uh, they're just... And that's the word that the Jews commonly used for the Gentiles. But the word Jesus uses here is not that word. He uses a word that means like a little household puppy who almost is like a member of the family. Do you have a little household pet? If anything happened to it, you would just about die. <laughs> you love that little thing so much. We have, I, I slept with three Jack Russells last night. Talk about, and my son is, uh, he's sending us his dachshund, so I'm going, to, I'm going into the kennel business, it looks like. He went back, came back from Christmas, and his dachshund is paralyzed. His back legs are, so I'm not only getting another grand dog, but he's a handicapped grand dog. And i got to go out and get a wheelchair for him. <laughs> I don't know what my life is coming to. But anyway, <laughs> the dogs. <laughs> it's going to the dogs. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> but anyway, I think this woman, there was a little, she saw a little hint, a little light of hope here by the fact that he used that diminutive word for house pup, uh, puppy instead of the other harsh word. And then over in, she, I think she had another little clue in Mark's account. I didn't read that. But he said to the, to the woman, let the children first be filled. What does that imply? Right. Somebody else could be filled after that. A second filling. So I think these two little clues gave this woman a door of hope. She saw a little ray of sunlight come peeping through. And she seized on it by saying, in effect, yes, Lord. It is true that we Gentiles do not sit with the children of the covenant at the table and eat bread. 
But, Lord, if you say that I am like a little household beloved puppy, I'm willing to stay here on the floor. I'm willing to get into whatever position you want. I I will beg like a little puppy in order to receive what I want from you. Have you gotten to that point in your, in your prayer life for your children, your grandchildren, for the next generation where you say, Lord, I'm willing to do whatever. I will get down on the ground and I will grovel. I will beg like a puppy dog. When we're that desperate, the Lord hears our prayers. Even the dogs get to feed on the crumbs, she said, which fall from the master's table. Well, doesn't this woman teach us a lot about humility and persistence? When you and I get serious enough with the Lord to be willing to say in our prayers to him, Lord, I will do anything you want me to do. I, I will tend to the elderly in the nursing home. I will, I will volunteer in the nursery at uh, Bible study. I will take any position you want me to take. If you want me to minister to hurting teens, I will do it. I'm willing to be your little house puppy. I'll serve you faithfully. You know how dogs are so faithful? They are a man's best friend. I will serve you faithfully all my life. When we pray like that, guess what? Jesus Christ is pleased. When he sees our genuine humility and he hears our determination and and we say, Lord, the crumbs from your table will be just fine with me. The woman knew what I hope that each and every one of us have learned. That is far, far better to have the crumbs that come from the master's table than it is to have a great feast out there at the world's table. You know why? Because just a little crumb has a way of getting inside of us and growing and multiplying and filling us, satisfying us, doesn't it? Whereas you can go out there and feast in the world all day long and you're still going to be unsatisfied. You're still going to be starving to death. And this woman came to realize this. Well, the Lord was very, very pleased with her response. And he said to her, O woman, great is thy faith, be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And as I said before, it is interesting, only two people he ever commended as having great faith, and both were Gentiles. And both of those accounts were only given to us in the uh, Gospel of Matthew, which is interesting because who did Matthew write to? Yes, he was the one who wrote to the Jews. What do you think he was telling the Jewish people? Look at here. The only ones he commended were Gentiles. Get your act together, my brothers and my sisters. And it is also, I'll close with this, it is also interesting that in both of those situations, the Lord did heal the ones they were interceding for at a distance. The Gentile servant boy was healed from a distance. This woman's daughter was delivered from her demon from a distance. She was at home. She wasn't with the mother. So this was to illustrate the, the, the truth that the Gentiles at this point in time, spiritually speaking, still were afar off. It wouldn't be until Calvary when Jesus officially died for Jew and Gentile that he would make, make reconciliation for the whole world possible. So this woman believed that Jesus was not only the fulfillment of the Jewish Messiah, she believed in the power of his mere word, spoken from a distance, his power over Satan's realm. She wasn't like the Jewish religious leaders who said, oh, he's doing that in the power of of Beelzebub. And she also believed that he was her Lord, and she worshipped him as such. So she not only received deliverance for her daughter, but guess what? She also received deliverance for her eternal soul. This woman we will see and get to meet in heaven. She had said that she would settle for just the crumbs, but do you know what she got instead? She got a whole loaf. She received the bread of life himself. What a great example she is for you and I. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for this example of persistent faith and prayer that this Gentile woman has given to us through the pages of your Holy Scripture. Thank you that you are not limited by any obstacle. So great is your power. Thank you, too, for the truth, the reminder of the fact 
that we need to be patient and wait on you and fret not ourselves, but your delays are not denials. Thank you for the hope that you give us through prayer. And we are faithful to keep on asking, keep on seeking, and keep on knocking. We trust in you, Lord, and we do want to hear you say to each and every one of us one day, O woman, great is thy faith. We love you, Jesus. Now go with each one. Bring us back safely, Lord willing, next week. And we we want to live this week for you. We pray in your name. Amen.